I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to an all-new mini-episode of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I have a mini-episode for you that was historically important. But as far as dates and headlines go for this story, there were a few that I could have used as our episode date. But ultimately, I decided to go with a date that today's story came to an end of sorts. Usually when I start a story or a new episode, I give you a headline to clue you into what the story is going to be about. But I'm not going to do that today. I'm just going to jump right into this story without giving you a headline. You can test yourself to see how much of history you either remember because you lived through it, or because you've read about it, or maybe because you paid attention in history class. But don't worry, I'll give you a headline a little bit later. Until then, I will tell you that today's episode date is June 13th, 1966. It was the day that something very important was decided. The main subject of this podcast is a man named Ernesto. Ernesto was born on March 9, 1941, in Mesa, Arizona. He wasn't a very well-behaved child, and always seemed to be in some sort of trouble, no matter where he went. When Ernesto was still young, his mom died. That was pretty hard on Ernesto, but to make matters worse, his father didn't wait very long before getting remarried and bringing a new mom into his life. Even before that happened, Ernesto hadn't gotten along very well with his father. To cope with it all, Ernesto spent his time trying to steer clear of his stepmother, his father, and his brothers. The first time Ernesto was convicted of something was when he was in the 8th grade. That's really young. An arrest and conviction at that young of an age can often scare kids into doing better and changing their naughty ways. But that wasn't the case with Ernesto. He was arrested again the very next year and convicted of burglary charges. That time, he was sent to a reform school called the Arizona State Industrial School for Boys. He stayed there until he was 15 years old, and then he was released. Again, you'd hope that maybe being in a place like a reform school would scare a young man into behaving, but alas, it didn't work on Ernesto. Just a month after he was released from the reform school, he did something bad again. He was arrested and sent right back to the Arizona State Industrial School for Boys. This was in 1956, and I'm not actually sure what it was that Ernesto kept doing to get himself into trouble, and I don't know the reasoning behind his releases from the school either, but just like the first time, he didn't stay there for very long before he was sent back home. After his second release from the reform school, while he was still an underage teenager, Ernesto decided to leave Arizona and set out on his own for California. Maybe he wanted a new start, where nobody knew about his rocky past. Or maybe he just wanted a change of scenery. If I had to guess, though, I'd guess the latter. Because, surprise, surprise, just a few months after moving to Los Angeles, Ernesto was arrested on suspicion of armed robbery and multiple sex offenses. I'll note here that he was never actually convicted on those charges, but he stayed in California state custody until he turned 18. At that point, he was sent back to Arizona. 
Now that Ernesto was officially an adult, he decided he could roam the country and go where he wanted and do as he pleased, which we've learned from his prior record that for Ernesto, going and doing as he pleased meant committing crime. First, he was arrested in Texas for living on the street without any money. He spent some time in jail there. Next, he was arrested in Nashville, Tennessee. That time, he was caught driving a stolen car. Unfortunately for him, he'd driven the car across state lines, which meant his punishment was going to be stiffer. He was sentenced to one year and one day in prison. His sentence was served partially in Ohio and partially in California. Don't ask me why they moved him during that year, because I have no idea why. Finally, after getting released from federal prison, Ernesto seemed to be on the right path in life. He managed to stay out of trouble. He even got a job and started earning his own money. It took a couple of tries to find a good fit when it came to work. But eventually, he started working a night shift at the loading dock of a produce company. While he was working there, he met his girlfriend, Twyla Hoffman. At 29 years old, she was quite a bit older than him and already had two kids from a previous marriage. That is, a previous marriage that had never actually ended. Twyla couldn't afford to get a divorce. I'm not sure how much time actually passed between the time when Ernesto moved in with Twyla and he committed his next crime. But I do know that it was on March 14, 1963, that the police caught up with him and said they had a few questions for him to answer. That's never a good sign, right? Anyway, earlier that day, a man driving around town noticed a pickup truck that seemed awfully familiar to him. You see, his 17 or 18-year-old sister, her age varies by source, had recently been kidnapped and raped, and she gave her brother, the man who spotted Ernesto, a description of the man who did it to her. The girl, or woman, was also able to describe the truck used in her assault, and she remembered a partial license plate. The brother immediately notified the police, and they confronted Ernesto. Now, at this point, it's important to note that Ernesto willingly and voluntarily accompanied the police officers to the station to be part of a lineup. He was considered a person of interest, and wasn't yet being charged with anything. The lineup started and Ernesto stood next to a few other guys. The police brought the victim in, I assume behind one-way glass, but I'm not sure, and she began to look at each of the men and their body features. Guess who she pointed out as the man that kidnapped and raped her? Yep. The police took Ernesto into an interrogation room and began to question him. They questioned and questioned and questioned Finally, Ernesto admitted that he was the one who had committed the horrible acts and agreed to write down his confession. It's very important to note here that at the top of each page of Ernesto's confession was printed the words, This statement has been made voluntarily and of my own free will, with no threats, coercion, or promises of immunity, and with full knowledge of my legal rights. Understanding any statement I make can and will be used against me. After writing out his full confession, the police brought Ernesto and the victim together so she could see if she recognized his voice. He spoke, she listened, and she said the voice sounded just like the man who'd harmed her. The officers then asked Ernesto if that was the girl he'd abused. Remember, he'd already written out a confession at this point. And he answered, that's the girl. 
The case seemed pretty cut and dry, and I'm sure the cops figured Ernesto's trial would be easy and quick, and they could move on to their next assignment. But if that was the way it went down, I wouldn't be telling you this story, right? You see, even though Ernesto had signed the confession, with the note at the top saying that he knew what his rights were, the truth of the matter was that at no time was he told that he could have an attorney present. Not before he was arrested, not when he was writing down his confession, not when he was talking to the victim. Never. At the very beginning of this story, I said I'd give you a headline later. Well, I think it's time to do that. And if you haven't figured out exactly who Ernesto is yet, this will clue you into just how important he was in United States history. This article was printed in the Chula Vista Star News out of California on June 23, 1966. The headline says, Police get official word on interrogation procedures. Have you figured out why Ernesto was important? I bet you have. His full name was Ernesto Miranda, and it was his case, Miranda versus Arizona, that gave us the police procedure known as reading someone their rights, or the Miranda rights. After Ernesto Miranda admitted to his crimes in 1963 and wrote out his confession, he was finally assigned a lawyer. That lawyer happened to be a 73-year-old man named Alvin Moore. Ernesto's trial took place a few months after his arrest. And during the trial, Ernesto's lawyer fought to have his confession removed from evidence, stating that nobody had told Ernesto he could have a lawyer present if he wanted. Alvin Moore didn't win that fight, though. And Ernesto was convicted of kidnapping and rape. He was sentenced to 20 to 30 years in prison for the crimes. But his lawyer wasn't done fighting for his client yet. Alvin Moore appealed the case to the Arizona Supreme Court and again argued against Ernesto's confession being submitted into evidence. So, do you think the ruling was changed at all after that? No. The Arizona Supreme Court upheld the conviction made by the lower court, and Ernesto stayed in prison. At this point, Alvin Moore's health had taken a turn for the worse, and he couldn't physically keep fighting and appealing the case. He had to bow out. Ernesto, facing decades in prison, decided he had nothing better to do than to continue to appeal his case. Except he had a problem. He didn't have any money to hire a lawyer who was willing to put in the time and effort to try to continue his appeals. That's when the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, heard what was going on and decided to get involved. They convinced a couple of criminal defense attorneys to take the case pro bono. The lawyers wrote a petition to the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of Ernesto Miranda, saying that his Fifth Amendment rights had been violated. Now, the chances of the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in the nation, actually agreeing to hear Ernesto's case were very slim. There is no way the Supreme Court could hear every single case that gets sent to them. They have to be very picky and choose their cases carefully. Nowadays, the Supreme Court gets requests to hear around 7,000 cases every single year, but they only accept between 100 and 150 cases. Despite the odds, Ernesto's lawyers pushed forward, petitioning that Ernesto's Sixth Amendment rights had been violated when he wasn't given the opportunity to get a lawyer before he was questioned and confessed. In November of 1965, their case was accepted. The case of Miranda versus Arizona was scheduled for January 1966, and it lasted for two weeks. 
I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty details of the case and who said what and when, but when all was said and done, Chief Justice Earl Warren released a 60-page statement and read it in its entirety from the bench. Don't worry, I'm not going to read you all 60 pages, but you'll recognize at least part of it. It says, The person in custody must, prior to interrogation, be clearly informed that he has the right to remain silent and that anything he says will be used against him in court. He must be clearly informed that he has the right to consult with a lawyer and to have the lawyer with him during interrogation and that if he is indigent, a lawyer will be appointed to represent him. If that statement sounds familiar, it was because that statement was the basis for the Miranda rights. When the court issued their official ruling, they didn't actually give any official wording or instructions. The Attorney General in California decided they needed to have a uniform way of issuing the Miranda rights, and assigned a couple of attorneys to take on the task. That's where the headline I read you a little while ago came from. It only took them a couple of hours to come up with a saying that we've all heard many times. One of those attorneys, Harold Berliner, had a passion outside of being an attorney. He loved fine art and letterpress printing. With his knowledge in that business, he decided to start printing the Miranda warning on a kind of vinyl paper that could go through the washing machine. Then he sent samples of his cards to police stations all over the country in hopes of making a few cells. It worked, and Harold ended up selling tens of thousands of his cards. And as a side note, Harold's business continued to take off so much that he was known for his posters and cards and fonts, and Harold Berliner's type foundry became the largest privately owned hot metal casting foundry in the entire world. He passed away in 2010, and you can still order books from the press bearing his name. Anyway... Harold's cards officially said, Miranda warning. One, you have the right to remain silent. Two, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Three, you have the right to talk to a lawyer and have him present with you while you are being questioned. Four, if you cannot afford to hire a lawyer, one will be appointed to represent you before any questioning if you wish one. Five, you can decide at any time to exercise these rights and not answer any questions or make any statements. Then the back side of the card said, After the warning and in order to secure a waiver, the following questions should be asked, and an affirmative reply secured to each question. 1. Do you understand these rights I have explained to you? And 2. Having these rights in mind, do you wish to talk to us now? I think some of the words have varied slightly over the years or by department, but they're all basically the same. Now, while we're pretty used to hearing the Miranda warning these days, mostly from hearing on TV so many times during crime dramas, it wasn't widely accepted in the beginning, and many people fought against it. They were of the opinion that criminals shouldn't be told about their rights. They argued that criminal activity would go up because of it, and when President Nixon became president, he promised to appoint Supreme Court justices who would reverse things. Anyway, since this episode is about Ernesto Miranda, you're probably wondering what happened to him after the landmark Supreme Court announcement. Well, Ernesto's conviction was overturned and his case went back to trial. That time, his confession wasn't allowed as evidence during the trial. Did that make a difference? 
Nope. Not in this case. There was plenty of other evidence, including testimony against him from Twyla Hoffman. If you remember from earlier, that was his living girlfriend. She testified that he told her about committing the crime. On March 1, 1967, Ernesto Miranda was once again convicted of kidnapping and rape. Again, he was sentenced to 20 to 30 years in prison. He appealed to the Supreme Court of Arizona, again, and they upheld the conviction, again, so he appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, again, but that time, they refused to hear his case. He stayed in prison, but only served a few years of his 20 to 30 year sentence, and he was paroled in 1975. When Ernesto got out of prison, he was determined to make changes and become a better person, or so he said. He returned to his old neighborhood in Arizona and started making money in a very unique way. He sold copies of the Miranda warning with his autograph on it. But his life of crime continued, and he was arrested multiple times for problems with his driving, and eventually his license was taken away. He was also arrested for having a gun with him, but those charges were dropped. However, since he was on parole at the time of the gun incident, he had to go back to prison for another year. Then, on January 31, 1976, more than a decade after the original incident, Ernesto Miranda was in a bar in Phoenix when the fight suddenly broke out over a poker game. Ernesto, who spent his entire life in some sort of trouble, was stabbed to death. The police arrested the suspect, and in the ultimate twist of irony, the cops doing the arresting were the same ones that had arrested Miranda years before. They read the suspect the Miranda warning and made sure he knew what his rights were for killing Miranda. That suspect chose to remain silent, and eventually he was released and disappeared. They never found him, and nobody ever went to jail for Ernesto Miranda's murder. Friends, thanks for listening to today's mini-episode. There was a lot of info and a lot of facts thrown at you, so I hope you managed to catch most of it. I'll post some pictures of Ernesto Miranda in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group, and then you can go ahead and join me again this coming Monday for an all-new, full-size episode about someone else who had something to say about their rights, too. I think you'll like that one. Talk to you later.